Welcome to Empathy Media Lab's Book Talks, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Bill Fletcher Jr., an activist, labor organizer, and an indispensable voice and thinker in these cataclysmic times. He's a co-author of two books titled The Indispensable Ally, Black Workers and the Formation of the Congress of Industrial Workers, 1934 to 1941, and of Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Toward Social Justice. He's also the author of They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Today, we'll be discussing his first work of fiction titled The Man Who Fell from the Sky, published by Hardball Press. And this murder mystery novel is based in 1970s Cape Cod and follows a young Cape Verdean American journalist investigating a savage act of murder with racial tensions simmering beneath. Bill, thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, I really appreciate it. And, and it, it is a page turner. And for your first novel, I, I loved it. And I loved the fact that you brought in a lot of historical information and cultural information and their great buildup and, and the story arc and everything and the character formation. But before we get into the book, could you talk a little bit about why you wanted to write this book, how it came together and any, anything else for those aspiring writers that are also trying to write their first novel? So writing is in my blood. I, I sometimes think that I inherited some of it from one of my great-grandfathers, who was William Stanley Braithwaite, a, a very preeminent pre-Harlem Renaissance African-American poet, writer, anthologist. But ever since I was a kid, I have come up with stories in my head that I've wanted to write. But in addition, most of my writing has been nonfiction, and it is focused on political issues, domestic and international. And I, I felt this deep need to write. I often say to people that if, if I'm not able to write, it's, it feels the equivalent of not being able to breathe. And I struggled to become a good writer. And I did that through repeatedly writing, getting criticism from people I trusted, most especially from my wife, who is an excellent editor. And just working at it repeatedly. In writing this book, I, I, I received a lot of help from my publisher, Tim Shearer, who really took me seriously, even though this was my, it wasn't my first work of fiction. My first work of fiction was a manuscript I wrote back in 2008 that um, I submitted to an agent who completely dismissed me and said to me that she said her final words to me were, when you return to nonfiction, call me. And it was like, whoa, if I hadn't enjoyed writing this, that manuscript as much as I did, Evan, I would have been crushed. But as it was, it, it was, it hurt. It, it wasn't, it wasn't helpful, but I decided in thinking through various stories, I came up with the basic outline for what became the men who fell from the sky. And it was my wife and daughter who basically gave me the go ahead, who both said, like my daughter said, dad, 
I think you've got a story there and maybe two. And so I went with it. So I would say that, that there's a few things. One is you got to want to write. The second is you've got to be willing to take criticism. And for a lot of people, that's not easy, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. You know, this is one of my reasons that I tend to discourage people from self-publishing because I say, you need a good editor. You need someone who's going to tell you what you don't want to hear. And, and if you're not prepared for that, this is not the work. This is not the line for you. And the first uh, book that you, you worked on, the first uh, manuscript, was it the pushback just thinking like, this isn't marketable, I can't make money on this? Was it a very kind of profit-oriented, as I would understand some no. editors are just saying, you know, I don't, I don't think it, the quality is good enough for me to even touch Yeah, it. it was more the latter. I mean, basically, it was a very brief conversation, phone conversation, and she said, she thought that the main character was flat and she just didn't, didn't like it. She wasn't compelled. And then she, when she said to me her final words, she was chuckling, which actually made it work. You know, when she said the comment about when you go back to nonfiction, call me. The short version is she had been introduced to me by a writer friend of mine, uh, someone who was a friend at the time. And both of them were encouraging me to write a nonfiction. And I tried outlining things and nothing quite clicked for me. And I found her pretty unhelpful because I actually needed someone to help me think through what value added I would bring on a particular subject, which is one of the things I'd say to writers that whether it's fiction or nonfiction, think about it at the level of value added. What is it that you add to a particular subject that makes the book something that you would seriously recommend to somebody? So she gave me no help, none. When I wrote the first draft of The Man Who Fell From The Sky, it was very much influenced by two things. One was my experience getting to know Cape Verdeans most people in the United States have no clue of. And the second was an incident from World War II that I had read about years back, but I could never get any real documentation on it. But that incident always stayed in my head as something that I might want to play with for purposes of writing something. And so I fused the two. An opportunity to talk about Cape Verdeans which gave me an opportunity to talk about race in the United States in unconventional ways, because Cape Verdeans have a very different experience than other U.S. African-Americans, at least those of us who have pre-1965 experiences. And, but I thought that their experience helps people unpack the complexity of race. But I also wanted to deal with issues of race, uh, of uh, revenge and justice, and the fine line that exists between those, which obviously other writers have, have dealt with in different ways. Yeah, and you mentioned a few times in the novel about the Cape Verdeans have come to the U.S. as the first Africans 
willingly for some of the early waves of immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're from New York City, I believe. And did you spend time growing up in Cape Cod or like visiting Cape Cod over the summers? Yeah. So I, I, as you said, I grew up in New York and my parents would take us, me and my sister, to Cape Cod during the summers. Pretty much every summer from that I can remember from 1960 on. And we would go for anywhere from two weeks to a month. And we stayed in either Mashpee or Hyannis. So when I got there, very different from New York City. And I encountered Black people who just seem different. And the way I make reference to them is, at the time I thought of them as Black people with strange names. Because they had these names that sounded sort of Spanish, but they clearly weren't. And then also, they didn't necessarily identify as Negro or colored, the terms used in the early 60s and later as Afro-American or Black. They frequently identified as Portuguese, which I found mystifying. And then some crossed over, you know, and, and so I was really intrigued by this. As I got older, I started to learn more about Cape Verdeans and who they were, their experiences coming to the United States. And, and they, they in some ways started to resemble characters from this in uh, Isaac Asimov's last novel, where he describes the people from a planet that deserted the planet and go to the capitalist galactic empire and basically dissolve in, but every so often they would have their own cultural programs, but most of the people didn't know that they still existed. And, and Cape Verdeans came here in the 19th century while Cape Verde, an archipelago off the coast of Africa, West Africa, they came here voluntarily as whalers and fishermen. And then started bringing their families, particularly because the Cape Verde islands are quite poor and, and subject to lengthy periods of drought. And so folks would come here and started settling and you end up having this clash of populations, the Cape Verdeans, Roman Catholic, they're Portuguese. They weren't slaves. They did not speak English. They had an identity rooted in the Cape Verde archipelago. And they encountered people of African descent here who were largely Protestants that were English speakers, uh, were overwhelmingly the descendants of slaves. And it was, there was this clash. And, and also in the United States, those of us that were the descendants of slaves here were experienced with the one drop rule, which is one drop of African blood made you black and therefore subject to slavery. The Portuguese form of white supremacy, as with the Spanish, didn't have the one drop rule. And they had a different hierarchy. It wasn't better than ours or worse. It was just different. A racial hierarchy that they created depending on the sort of the amount of African and European blood that people had. So that led to all kinds of identity confusion, you know, when they got here. So I just, I was very interested in this and what does it tell us? So that novel is situated at a point when the 
the people of Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, which they were tied with by the Portuguese, are involved in the National Liberation War for their freedom. And that's affecting Cape Verdeans here, as is the Black Freedom Movement, and particularly the Black Power Movement. So you start to see this change in consciousness. And I just thought, this is a great period to explore. And I think that's one of the beautiful vehicles of this fiction is that you're able to pull in all of these different themes and the question of identity and the question of colonization and these Cape Verdeans living in Cape Cod who identify as Portuguese. And there's some interchange and dialogue about saying, well, you're, you're identifying with your colonial oppressor. And then this tension between Black Americans or African Americans with Cape Verdeans and those trying to pass even is, is a big kind of theme with, within this novel as well. And it, it, it's just like, like life. It's, it's just, there's so many complications and historical threads that you can pull and, and you, you do a great job of having these different characters come in and even the fight at the party that, that just shows kind of these, these inner tensions that can boil over <laughs> even well, within families. You know, the issue of passing was not unique to Cape Verdeans, but there was a unique side to it. And that, that scene in the, in the party was probably my favorite scene writing. Actually, there was two, two favorite scenes. That was one. And then one towards the end, which I'm not going to give away, but the scene at the party. So. Let, let me tell you. So I, I had a discussion with a Cape Verdean friend of mine before I wrote the book. And when I was thinking about it, I didn't even know she was Cape Verdean. And, and so we start talking and she tells me she's Cape Verdean. So, oh, man. So I gave her the manuscript, the first draft, and, and she really liked it. And that was also very encouraging. And she gave me some recommendations. And I started playing with this idea and the, and the party was an opportunity to explore the tensions within a family around politics and identity and, and how this just sort of all blew up. And when the book came out, I didn't know how King Verde and Americans were going to respond to it. I was scared to death, you know, and I am telling you, Evan, the response has just been phenomenal. I mean, people really are just, I've given a couple of presentations in Bedford and Massachusetts and, and other places. And I get Cape Verdeans come up and say, you nailed it. You nailed it. You know, it's like, nobody talks about this. And I've just been elated. I'm hoping that they respond as favorably to the sequel, which uh, hopefully will be published in another few months. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was going to lead up to that, and we, we can talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. And you also bring in the, the backdrop of Vietnam, and, and my father was drafted and fought in the demilitarized zone in Da Nang in like these three-day triple canopy jungle, you know, looking for the enemy at that time. And he's, he's in a unit, he's 23 with 17, 18, 19-year-olds. And that really, for my parents, helped plant the seed into me about just the absurdity of a lot of government interventions and imperialism and, and a lot of these thoughts. So that's kind of raging in the background. And then you also have the FBI 
mm-hmm. antagonizing the journalist as well. And you have the Black Panthers mm-hmm. kind of on the side that may show up a little more in the sequel. What what are you drawing from personally when you're writing about this? Because I, I have heard other mm. interviews where you, you have some experience when you were younger with, with the Black Panthers. Oh, yeah. So... Oh, a lot of experiences. So the Vietnam War, absolutely, along with the Black Freedom Movement, and then subsequently other movements, really shaped me. In the 1980s, well, let me put, let me back up. I went to work after graduating from college in a shipyard, which becomes important in the sequel. Uh, because the sequel, which is called The Man Who Changed Colors, begins at the same shipyard I worked, where I worked, and begins with the death of a Cape Verdean immigrant who falls to his death. And I had fallen 20 feet that same summer. And I used that as a jumping off point. Actually, I did. I mean, I fell 20 feet. Yeah, what, what happened? Was it workplace safety oh, yeah. or other issues? Oh, no, on? no. It, yeah. was, it was, what happened was shipyards are very dangerous. And they're so dangerous that what happens is that you can't think about the dangers all the time. Otherwise, you won't be able to work. So I went to the top of a compartment and I was standing on these wooden boards, sitting on metal stiffeners but they weren't tied down to anything. So I'd come back from break. I go up, I put, pull my shield down and I stand up to start welding. And the last thing I remember is this feeling that this, and then the next thing I know, I'm opening my eyes and I'm looking up and my partner is sitting way up looking at me. And these other people had come over And one of them was the medic in the shipyard. And I said, how bad is it? And he wouldn't answer me. And so they took me out uh, and took me to the hospital. And believe it or not, I had only suffered a mild concussion and some bruising and a cut in the back of my head. And that's because apparently when I fell, I hit some metal. Right away, was knocked unconscious and just dropped. If I had been conscious, I probably would have been killed. So that's where that that uh, the sequel begins. While I was at the shipyard, I worked alongside a lot of Vietnam veterans. Some of them would talk about their experiences; others would not. And I increasingly became interested in veterans and their issues, and particularly in the eighties and how this country treats veterans. You know, there's this whole thing that's often said by right-wingers who attack the left and they'll say, you all spit on veterans when they came back from Vietnam. And what is true is that many people treated the veterans badly when they came back because they saw them as servants of an unjust war. But what was worse was not that. What was worse was the way that the society as a whole and the government in particular treated the veterans. And they didn't give a damn about them. 
veterans who were suffering from Agent Orange, from PTSD, whatever, were treated like dogmas. And so every time I hear these right-wingers talk about, oh, you left us, it's like, go to hell, right? You know, it's like every time we're going to war, we talk about, yeah, you got to serve the country. And then when veterans come back, they're treated like mess. Yeah, Let's focus on that. So that the issue of veterans is something that frequently preoccupies me. The FBI issue was definitely related to matters of cointel pro it relates to the discussion about the Panthers who play a minor role there. They don't play a, a role in the sequel, but if I write a third one, they may, but I decided that it would be useful to give people a sense of the atmosphere of the times. This is taking place mainly in 1970. And the FBI, through its counterintelligence program, known as COINTELPRO, was involved in incredible disruption and indeed murder of people, of activists. And, and so we have a situation there where the FBI ultimately is harassing the main character. And so you get a sense of the, of the moment and of, you know, the FBI not being about law enforcement, but about, about being, uh, about repression. So yeah, there were different things that I pulled on and then the main character himself is a veteran, but was, uh, did not serve in Vietnam, but served at the Korean DMZ, demilitarized zone, which a lot of people don't talk about, but I've spoken to enough veterans over the years that have told me how dangerous the Korean DMZ has historically been. And I'm talking about post-1953. So I decided to introduce that. And there's that scene where someone's taking shots at a speaker and uh, snipers from the other side start hailing down bullets. Exactly. And, and those kind of uh, gunfire exchanges happened frequently along the Korean DMZ. I mean, it was no place to play games. And, and so, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to get that across. And as I encounter a lot of younger Americans, you know, in their twenties and thirties, many are starting to become conscious of the history, but most that I'm meeting are completely unconscious of the history. And, you know, you even bring up George Wallace's campaign, 68 campaign with one of the antagonist's son supporting this campaign and, and people don't even have any understanding of what was going on in the 68 elections and what happened with RFK and the fact that LBJ stopped running. So yeah. you bring in all of these different historical pieces and then even World War II, which is the good war that we, the last war we supposedly really won. And it, it also kind of inverts it to this idea that we're fighting for freedom, yet there is still this, this issue that leads to the, the title of the book, that the person who was the, one of the first sins in the book, the man who fell from the sky is, is I, I don't want to give away <laughs> too much or, or have any spoilers. Well, no, I mean, World War II is very complicated for just a host of reasons. One of which has nothing to do with the book, but relates to something I recently wrote about Ukraine and the Russian invasion in Ukraine and the way 
uh, some forces on the left have, in my opinion, misanalyzed the situation and look at things as the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And leading up to World War II, there was actually a pro-Japanese movement within the United States that had some roots among parts of Black America. It was a pro-Japanese movement in Asia too that looked at the Japanese as allies in the struggle against Western imperialism. And this is something that is very rarely discussed. What's also inconsistently discussed is how racist the U.S. military was during World War II. And, and so it was, it was not just about segregation. It was also about the way the troops were treated and also the impact of the demobilization at the end of World War II and what that meant for who was eligible for the GI Bill and who was not, which I don't get into in the book because that would have taken me down a different path. But, but it, it's, you know, was that the greatest generation? It was a great generation. And they, they are, they should be our heroes. And I watch films like Band of Brothers and just think, you know, the HBO story about the 101st Airborne Division. Just think about the courage of these folks. But that doesn't change the fact that there was a whole lot of racism that was going on and very strict lines about who could serve in what units and what would happen. Even the controversy about whether Black troops liberated concentration camps with this active pushback by some folks that said, no, no, actually they didn't. When it's like, they, I don't mean liberate every concentration camp, you know? So, so yeah, I wanted to, I wanted the reader to get a sense that this was, this was a very complicated war and being a fighter in it, you know, it wasn't like everybody was volunteering to go. Even after Pearl Harbor, people had a certain notion of what it meant to be in the military. So I wanted to play with that. Yeah. And another major theme, as you mentioned earlier, is the idea of justice and revenge. Mm -hmm. And I constantly grapple with this as well as there are so many problems in the world and especially in this country. And you look at some things like the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, but at the same time, you the other day you hear George Bush slipping about the fact that he is one of the biggest war criminals that has existed in my lifetime. And we talk about Nuremberg and things like that. And if it goes all the way to the top, the chain of command, then he provoked an unjust war. And so in some ways he should go into a Nuremberg proceeding. In other ways, that's politically not practical or pragmatic or however you want to say it. And how do you get to the point of, of reconciliation? Yet at the same time, you've, you can understand why someone may want to kill someone else who had their family member killed. And then it becomes this eye for an eye cycle where in turn the other cheek and forgiveness. So there's, there's these many layers that, that are throughout the book that, that, that is the central theme of the book in a lot of ways. Absolutely. You know, some months ago, I was giving a talk and I was being asked about truth and reconciliation. And, and I said, the conclusion I've come to 
is that there's a, an R, another R missing. It's not just truth and reconciliation. It needs to be truth, rectification, and reconciliation. And, and the notion that it's enough to identify the truth and then we reconcile is idealist in a philosophical sense. It's not based on reality. That, um, that the reconciliation has to come about on the basis of rectification, changing, repairing the damage that's been done. So, you know, it's not enough if, if, if George W. Bush were at some point to apologize for the invasion of Iraq, it, it simply wouldn't be enough any more than it was enough that you know, Robert McNamara apologized. What we need to know is, what are you going to do to repair the damage? What are you going to do personally? What are you going to do institutionally? So in my story, as you said, I play with this issue of when do you cross the line? When, when do you, you know, when, when so many people feel that such an injustice has happened, has happened and that it is unlikely that there will ever be justice in response. That's when you have people crossing that line into revenge. And it's completely understandable. But when does that get out of control? You know, like on a, on a massive level, in the aftermath of the Rwanda genocide in 94 against the Tutsis, Troops of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the largely Tutsi military that had been opposing the right-wing Hutu government, pursued the Hutu, Hutu military into the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo and carried out atrocities, not just against Hutu troops, but against Hutu people, civilians. Now, you can understand, as you can when the Soviet troops arrived in Berlin in 1945 and carried out all kinds of atrocities, you can understand what drives people that, to that when they saw their homes destroyed, the villages destroyed, their families murdered. You can understand, but that's not, understanding is not a justification. And, and it, it is up to the duty of civilized people to put a control on that. And, and so the, one of the characters in my book is grappling with the issue of revenge and the question of how far he should go is what I wanted to leave the readers thinking about. Yeah. And even if it is executed, the revenge, and does that change anything? And does right. that change anything within the person? And I, I love the idea of the adding the rectifying. And also, I, I always like to try to invoke some type of qu questioning or, or some type of answer that from someone who, what was your thinking that led you here? And how has your thinking changed? So even if you're saying, I apologize, I'm sorry, 
Well, let, let's take a step back first here. How did you go there? And then what changed in your thinking that now you feel that you are, have found some type of redemption in, in understanding your wrong ways instead exactly. of just saying it's politically opportunistic right now to, to apologize. Right. So. No, exactly. You know, if Donald Trump, who, by the way, inspired me to do the uh, George Wallace issue in the book, because I think that not enough people appreciate that Trump is in some ways the fusion of George Wallace and Roy Cohen. The, uh, the thing that I think about is like, if, if someday Trump were to apologize for all that he's done, what would that mean? I mean, even if it was sincere, I mean, George Wallace apologized. As you may remember, after he was governor uh, of Alabama. Yeah, that's right. After the Dem Democratic injured, Party as well. Yeah. Right. And after he was injured in the assassination attempt, uh, some years later, he apologized. And it's like, well, what difference does it make? You know, when you think about the damage that you have wrought, what are you prepared to do? That's why I'm always intrigued when, for example, you get these ex-fascists, ex-white supremacists who not only will apologize, will, but actually will go to work to counter neo-fascism and work with people to try to move them out of these neo-fascist cults and whatever and paramilitary groups. And to me, that's like rectification. I can really respect that. Well, I definitely want to encourage everyone to get the book and we'll share that in the show notes. But um, before we end this interview, I have a few more questions I want to talk about is your technical writing process. Sure. How do you go through, how often do you write? Are you a morning writer? Are you someone who carries a notepad is always writing? Do you set aside time? for, especially for those folks who just have no idea of, of where to begin to, to be a good writer. So I begin the, the process for me writing is I start in my head and I start dreaming up a film. I mean, in other words, I start thinking about this as if it was a movie and I start thinking about how different things would play out or could play out. The second thing is outlining. What are some of the key points, the key steps that I would want to see in this, in its progression? And those are the first two things I would say to any writer. It's not just contrary to what Sean Connery does in Finding Forrester, a film that I love, by the way, where he basically tells his young mentee just start writing. I, I would say, start dreaming an idea and then do an outline. Doesn't have to be a, much of an outline. Then when I start writing, you're not going to like this answer. I, I write when I feel like it. And that is usually when I have peaceful time to play with ideas that tends to be in the morning, but it can be in the afternoon. It's almost never in the evenings. 
And I do a lot of my writing on weekends, creative writing. During the week, I can edit. And, and so I can edit fiction or nonfiction during the week. And, you know, because it's a different kind of thinking that I'm called upon to do. But in the, in the actually creating, I need more space. How much I write really depends. Depends on both what I have going on that day, but also what I'm inspired to do. Sometimes I get these incredible bursts of inspiration and I'm just at it. Um, other times it may be that I write two paragraphs and that's it. And then I can't read anymore. So I would say to someone, you got to find that point that, that works for you. You don't have to say, I'm going to work every morning, write every morning. That may not work. It may be that you say, I'm going to do, I'm going to write on Saturdays and Sundays. And that's it. And if that works for you, I'd say, go for it. And I really have found my own voice writing, get the ideas out of my head, get them on paper. I'm less emotional about them and I can kind of look at them a little more objectively and it helps order your thinking and thoughts. I, I think everyone in the world, it would be great if we had a stronger education system that really developed this capacity in each one of us to try to find the, the highest potential of writing because I also like film and music videos and it all begins with writing and creating scenes and yeah. that, that imagery within your head that you're not, you're, you're showing and not telling. So you're just painting the, the picture with words. And yeah, I really appreciate that. And you need, everyone needs mentoring support. You know, I was lucky in a lot of my school, schooling from elementary school on. I had teachers, I had some terrible teachers, but I also had some great teachers. And the great teachers were ones that really encouraged me to write. One of them was the actress, Maya Bialik's mother, Maya Bialik from The Big Bang Theory and, uh, and Blossom. And her mother, Beverly Bialik, was my eighth grade English teacher. Very progressive and really encouraged me to write didn't force me to write, but I would write, I would do these extra credit reports and it was, it was thrilling to get them back. And there was like an A, you know, I did this extra credit report on the Bavarian revolution of 1918 and 1919. And it's like, cause I'm really interested in history. Obviously. Is that Rosa Luxemburg and like the Spartacus was, uprising was, in Berlin? Even though, it, was, it, yeah. was, it was right after that, there was an uprising in Bavaria and they set up a Bavarian socialist Republic that was then ultimately overthrown by the Freikorps, by the right-wing military. And there was this Jewish guy that led the uprising. And I wrote something about that. And, you know, it's like getting that kind of encouragement and I think it's really important because it's really easy to become discouraged. Just remember back that story I said about that agent. And, I, and let me just say one thing about agents while I'm at it. <clears throat> A friend of mine said to me once, agents are there for people who don't need them and are not there for people who need them. And that has been my experience. I, before I met Tim Sheard, my publisher, 
I did a search for agents, completely unsuccessful, not just unsuccessful. I would get back answers or responses are just like, no, but I got one response. Evan, that was really, really fascinating. The agent wrote back and said, I really liked your manuscript. I would have introduced the characters differently than you did. And therefore I won't represent you. Man, I read that like three times I'm saying, and I said to my wife, what am I? She liked the manuscript has an editing suggestion and is not going to represent me. It's like, what? So it's, it's really hard to get agents and it becomes almost a catch 22. So if you're a writer like Robin Kelly, you can get an agent, you know, a Ta-Nehisi Coates, but, or if you happen to be an immigrant who had some sort of traumatic experience, for most of us, agents aren't there and incredibly frustrating. And there's a lot of good writers out there that never get the opportunity. They don't, they don't bump into a Tim Shirt, right? They don't get the encouragement or like the, that agent that I described says something to you that is humiliating and, and, and it just, it just like, it pulls the, it just releases the air from you. So having support from people that you respect, very, very important in terms of this line of work. And I have had Tim Sheard on the program a few times, and he mentions that unless you're taking out those big ads in the New York Times, New York Times isn't going to review your book oftentimes. And yeah, there, there is that big, yeah, big money thing going on. And that's why it's so important to support independent publishers and, and work with authors who are really hitting these issues that just aren't getting into the mainstream that's without right. our networks helping to promote them amongst our communities. Exactly. No, absolutely. That's very, very challenging. And when you're with a small publisher, they have limited resources. They can't put you on the road. You have to go on your own and it's just, it's, it's complicated and getting the reviews, you know, it, it's led me as someone who used to write a lot of book reviews, I've pulled back because I've found that unsolicited reviews go almost nowhere. I was contacted by a newspaper a couple of years ago, two, three years ago. I'm not going to say who it was, but they wanted me to do a review of this book by, it was a nonfiction book and the name seemed familiar. And, and so then they basically said, do you know this person? Have you worked with this person? I said, no. And then it occurred to me that several years previously, I had interviewed the author on this web TV show that I was doing for Telesaur English called the global African. It was an interview. I didn't know the guy. So I, I just said to the newspaper, I just remembered that actually I had interviewed him 
And they said, okay, well, thanks anyway. It's like, I, I didn't say I slept with the guy. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like, I, I interviewed him. So, I mean, what, I, what, what difference does that make? And they disqualified me. So it's very hard to get reviews unless you're one of those unique people or as Tim said, your publisher, you know, it's almost like what they used to have in the radio with payola, you know, where you have to buy ads and then they'll do reviews. I'm back in record play, pay right. the DJ to, to get the airplay. Yeah. So. So as we're rounding out this interview, I do want to talk about the role of the writer and artist in society. And how do you, you see yourself writing fiction in these turbulent times and, and how it may be used as a vehicle and not necessarily that the artist is going to save the world or anything like that, but what, what is the role of art in the, these times? I, I think that the role of art is to quite literally and figuratively paint a picture and to reach out to people both to entertain as well as to educate. I'm not against entertainment at all. I'm not one of these purists, but I think that we can use art in order to educate people about things that they might not read or study elsewhere. For instance, as a nonfiction writer, people ask me, why are you writing a novel? If you want to write about Cape Verdeans, why don't you just like write something about Cape Verdeans? And I said, well, among other things, because a lot of people I want to reach aren't necessarily going to read a nonfiction book about Cape Verdeans. But if they read a novel, they may be inspired to then go and read some things about Cape Verdeans or about World War II or about whatever else. I faced interesting responses when I told people I was writing a novel. So there were some people that were immediately enthusiastic. There were others that sort of said, oh, that's interesting. Pass the ketchup, you know, they didn't explore it. And then there were others that gave me these very artificial smiles, these sort of smiles, these forced grins, where you knew that they basically thought, I was an idiot. And what was really funny about it was after the book came out, many of the people who had been skeptical about me writing a novel, first of all, liked the novel. And then they did something else that was interesting. They said, Bill, you know, I've always wanted to write something. These are the people that were skeptical, right? Always wanted to write something. And what I've been doing, I've been a sort of evangelist for novel writing, encouraging people. Yeah, write, go for it. You know, write that, write that outline, write that first chapter, go for it. There's nothing to stop you. And don't let your self-image stop you. So my self-image or the image around me is of nonfiction writer theorist, activist, et cetera, right? That doesn't write novels. But then you find out Frederick Douglass wrote it. Du Bois wrote novels. You know what I mean? It's like, because there's a part of humans, it, we're not one dimensional. And that's a thing for writers to understand. 
and not feel guilty about. Don't feel, if, you, if you're a nonfiction writer, don't feel guilty about writing fiction. And if you're a fiction writer, don't feel guilty about stepping into nonfiction. But the thing to keep in mind is that they are very different spheres and very different writing. That's something that I learned from Tim, that a lot of my writing expertise as a nonfiction writer was simply not transferable into the realm of fiction. I had to learn a new language. Well, you've done a great job of pulling off your nonfiction work and this book of fiction, this novel, The Man Who Fell From the Sky. And a final question. So what gets you out of bed? What keeps you hopeful? I, I find just so many people beaten down after four years of Trump two plus years of COVID. Now we're, we're seeing just so many crazy things happening in the world. And, and what really kind of motivates you to, to continue the struggle and pushing on? My daughter and my granddaughter. I think having kids in some ways is the greatest inspiration to continue to fight. You don't, when you, when you think about the future generations, you don't want to leave them with a complete mess, recognizing that they'll create their own messes. And what also inspires me is watching people fight back. This has not been a one-sided battle uh, where we're just fought, falling prey to defeat. We're fighting back, uh, whether it was the responses to the George Floyd murder or any number of other things, people are fighting back, looking at teachers going on strike, looking at the Amazon workers fighting back, the Starbucks workers, et cetera. People are fighting back. What we have to recognize though is this, Martin Luther King had this beautiful saying, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. The problem is he was wrong, or at least half wrong. The arc of history is long. It doesn't bend towards justice. It bends all over the place. It bends sometimes towards justice and sometimes towards barbarism. When the Mongols took Baghdad and destroyed it, they set back humanity hundreds of years because of the great knowledge that had been accumulated in Baghdad. It, we don't know how things will progress. Therefore, we have to be willing to stand there and fight and keep moving, just knowing that we will never be able to predict the outcome. And that inspires me. Well, once again, speaking with Bill Fletcher Jr., and you can buy your copy of this great mystery novel, The Man Who Fell from the Sky, published by Hardball Press. And Bill, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me. Take care. Mm -hmm.